you didn't get sermon notes, we've got sermon notes in the back uh, for you at the table. We're going to be um, in a lot of different areas today, so um, I'll let you know where to start turning when we actually get into the Word this morning. We are starting our summer series on uh, dealing with some different uh, doctrines and theological topics that are maybe not as familiar to us as they need to be, or maybe just using it as an opportunity to refresh ourselves about some important things uh, that we need to to be aware of, to know rightly uh, as followers of Christ. We've been talking a lot about um, our time in the Word, how we have a responsibility to individually be in the Word, to be studying God's Word, to be knowing God's Word, so that we can understand Christ better, so that we can understand God better in that relationship that we have with Him. So we're going to look at some different uh, topics this summer that I think are important and relative to that. We're going to start off for the next few weeks looking at a doctrine of God, who he is, and examining some of what we might would be tempted to refer to as his less desirable traits. Uh, some of the things that are attacked and criticized by people who do not follow Christ, people who would consider themselves maybe even atheistic because they are dissatisfied with the type of God that they see in Scripture. And for those people, a lot of times they want to highlight some of these less desirable traits. And we want to understand these traits in the context of how God has revealed himself throughout Scripture. We want to not shy away from these things as believers so that when some of these topics are dealt with, that we don't try to cover those up or try to steer clear of those because we don't know how to handle them, that we can face those things head on and explain to people how those incidences in Scripture fit in with the overall revelation of who God is and how it's consistent with his character and the way that he's revealed himself. Uh, so we're going to look over the next few weeks at why God specifically kills people in Scripture. I want us to highlight some of those uh, those scenes that maybe we read it and we're like, eh, I don't I don't know what to do with that. Uh, in the Old Testament, where we've got an individual who's who's picking up sticks on the Sabbath day and God kills him, where we have an incident where a guy tries to stop the Ark of the Covenant from tipping over and he touches it and he's killed for it. When God kills um, whole groups of people, both the men, the soldiers, the women, and the babies. Why God does that? Why does God slaughter an entire an entire society of people? Um, in the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira tell a lie about how much money they've given to the church. So it's not just an Old Testament thing. It also We also see these instances in the New Testament where God is taking lives from people uh, because of their actions. And so we want to look at that in the context of how God has revealed himself throughout Scripture, see how that's consistent with a loving, gracious merciful God and how that's not a isolated event that caught God on a bad day kind of thing. So we're going to look at that next week. We're also going to look at how God reveals himself as a God of jealousy, how he even identifies his name as jealous in the Old Testament and what that looks like, how we can understand jealousy in its rightful context, uh, because we're so often... Um, we're so often in a situation where we identify jealousy as a negative quality, as a negative characteristic, as something that we should not be in a situation. We're going to see where jealousy fits in rightly 
when God reveals himself that way. And then lastly, we're going to look at why the Bible tells us to fear God. Um, you know, we identify God as a father, as a loving figure. Scripture reveals himself, reveals God that way. But then Scripture is also very clear that we have a responsibility to fear God, uh, to fear the name of God, to fear the person of God. And so what does it look like to have godly fear? Is it more than just reverence and respect? What does it mean to to fear God? And so we're going to look at that um, in the next couple of weeks as well. So hopefully identifying some things that maybe you, you've thought about before, wrestled through before, uh, but maybe haven't been able to come to a clear understanding about. Hopefully we can bring us to a clear understanding of that um, over the next few weeks. And then as we move into July, uh, Lord willing, we're going to be looking at um, God and the covenants of Scripture. Uh, we want to look at what's typically identified as covenant theology, what that means, what dispensational theology is, um, and kind of bring those two together, figure out what we are as a church um, as we try to understand those two things. And then also looking at the Holy Spirit and the gifts that he gives to us. We're going to look at the, the gifts of the Spirit in the book of Acts and then look at what that means for us today as a church. As we continue to talk about serving on ministry teams, serving in this local church, how we use the gifts that, that God has given us through his Spirit, how we use those effectively, and how we can hopefully even understand the giftedness that God has given to us. So a lot of different things we're going to cover this summer. Um, I hope you'll stay with us. I hope as you... Um, have to miss maybe because of vacation and different things like that, that you'll stay up to speed with what we're doing through our podcast um, so that you don't fall behind on some of these important um, topics that we're going to be dealing with this summer. We start this morning just kind of a, as a way of introduction and in, in dealing with um, God behaving badly, uh, looking at some of these characteristics that, like I said, some of these atheistic people who reject God would say, these are bad things that God does. This is why I don't believe in this God of the Bible, because I see inconsistencies in the way that he reveals himself. So in your notes, our responsibility to know God rightly. First of all, I think it's important to know that to love God fully, we must know him rightly. To know God or to love God fully, we must know him rightly. So as we've been talking about the importance for our church to be in the word, we have a responsibility to, to love God. But the only way that we can love God is if we know him fully, if we know him rightly. And so we need to understand how God reveals himself throughout Scripture, not just in the familiar passages that we go to, not in just the familiar, maybe even specifically New Testament passages that we go to. And we say this is who God is. This is what it means to, to know God, that we understand that from Genesis to Revelation, God is telling a story about himself and he's revealing important characteristics and attributes about himself. And so we want to uh, to love him fully by knowing him rightly. And we know that God is concerned about us knowing him rightly. In Job chapter 42, Job chapter 42, verses 7 and 8, After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now, therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. 
That's an important passage. God is, is, is very angry at the fact that he has been misrepresented. Misrepresented by people that claim to follow him. So these aren't lost people that are, that are speaking out against him or, or what we per, would perceive to be as lost people. These are people that believe that they are in fellowship with God that are speaking about him and they're doing it wrongly. This is so important even when we think about discipleship in our church and the relationships that we're forming with individuals in our church. For those of you that are meeting with people in our church, meeting with younger believers and trying to teach them the Bible, trying to teach them about Christ, it's so important that you know God rightly and that you are communicating right things about God to these people in our church because God takes it very serious. And I've been in context before where I've heard people who claim to be Christians that are not talking rightly about God. They're not talking rightly about him. They're, they're, they're using emotion. They're using sentiments. They're using their own thought process about how they think God should be, how they think God should act. And they're communicating it as though it's truth. And they're misrepresenting God. And we, we have to be so careful that we're seeking to know God through Scripture that that's something that's happening regularly. So we're not just relying on previous knowledge about God. That we're constantly renewing our minds, renewing our thoughts, renewing our understanding of who God is. So that for no other reason, as we communicate God to others, we're doing it rightly. Mark 12, verse 30. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. We have to... To love God with our minds. That's a part of it. The knowledge that we have. Obviously knowledge doesn't guarantee love. Doesn't guarantee that we're going to love God. Because we see that the Pharisees had a lot of knowledge about God. But it didn't translate into their lifestyle. So knowledge doesn't guarantee love. But we do have to have right knowledge. If we're going to love God rightly. Secondly. To know God rightly. We must fight to understand him responsibly. To know God rightly, we must fight to understand him responsibly. So if we're going to love God, we have to know him. And if we're going to know him, we're going to have to fight to know him. Because our world fights against a right knowledge of God. Our, our world fights to confuse us about who God is. And so we have to fight against that. If we're going to know him responsibly, Romans 12, 1 and 2 talks about how we have to renew our minds so that we're not conformed to this world. So that we don't fall prey to what this world says about spiritual things, what this world even want to communicate, wants to communicate to us about who God is. That we have to fight against some of that. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Verse 3, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And take every thought captive to obey Christ. Being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Colossians chapter 1, verse 9 and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled 
with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. We have to fight for that knowledge. We have to fight to know God rightly. For some of us, that simply means fighting to find time in our schedule to be in the word. That's a theme that we've been talking about over the past month or so. Fighting to be in the word, fighting a busy schedule, fighting to find time in your week to commit hours to being in God's word. Why? Because we have to know God rightly. We have to know God rightly. He's, he's value, he values that. He, he finds that important. We've got to find that important in our own schedule. Our knowledge of God is the foundation of our Christian life. As we come to a better understanding of who God is, we are able to understand better what it means to have a relationship with him. It's important that we read God's word so that we can gain an accurate picture of what God is like. It can be very dangerous to form opinions about God that have no biblical support. And you may remember times in your life where you had thoughts about God, opinions about God that that had no biblical support. And as you studied scripture more, those opinions and thoughts changed as you realize that God has actually revealed himself differently than what you thought. But from an emotional standpoint, from your own personality standpoint, you felt like this is what God is like. This is what God would do. This is who God is. But then you see maybe a different picture in scripture based on how he's revealed himself. Our goal must be to not only think right things about God, but to connect those right thoughts with our hearts, which leads to right actions. Like a wise builder, we need to labor. We need to think, read, study to establish our beliefs, our dreams, our choices, and our views on the truth of Jesus. He talks about this in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 27. It's the, um, the illustration that Jesus uses about uh, the wise man building his house. He builds it on the truth of God's word so that his choices and his dreams and his aspirations are, um, are faithful to what God wants them to be. Let's look at how God's revealed himself, God's revelation of himself. First of all, it's available to us. It's available to us. God has not left us in a situation where we can't know him. He's made himself available to us in Proverbs chapter 2, verse 1. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and Equity, every good path for wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Matthew chapter 16, verse 1. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to test him. They asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, when it's evening, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky. But you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. 
God has given us revelation in Scripture. He's given us the ability to know him, to understand him, to understand how he works. It's been made available to us. And we've talked about this recently. As believers in this day and age, in the time that we live, we have more revelation available to us than anybody has had throughout history. We have more revelation about who God is. We have more resources, more ability to know him than any Christian that's lived in any other time in history. Well, we, can, we, can, we, have, we have tools and resources available to us at our computers. We have the ability to, to hear and to read pastors from all over the country that are writing and speaking true things about who God is. I thought before like how, how much harder it would have been uh, for my dad when he was pastoring to prepare sermons, knowing the resources that I have available to me, the ability that I have to go and, and check what John Piper or John MacArthur or some of my other favorite pastors have to say about a passage of Scripture, that stuff wasn't available to pastors in the early 90s, which wasn't that long ago. They didn't have websites that they could go to to read this stuff. I mean, you had to call the church and order a cassette tape if you wanted to hear a sermon by those guys. I mean, I've got stacks of cassette tapes that I had to go through with my dad's of, of sermons from pastors that, that he would call in order so he could listen to them. We have such an advantage, such an ability to know God, unlike any other Christian in any other time in history. It's available to us. It's always been available. I mean, God in the Old Testament is speaking that you can know me. I've made revelation available to you. But how even more true that is, how even more true it is for the proverb that we can cry out for understanding and wisdom, and it's readily available to us. God has made himself available to us. Secondly, it's sufficient for us. The revelation that God has made available is sufficient for us. Psalm chapter 98. Verse 2, the Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. 2 Timothy 3.15 talks about how scripture is sufficient for us, how it's profitable for us, how it's, it's, it's available to us, and it gives us everything that we need in life. 2 Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter one, verse two, my grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And we have those promises recorded for us in God's word. It's sufficient. Thirdly, it's purposeful. It's purposeful. God has very intentionally chosen what he wants to reveal to us. I think, I think it's important for us to know anytime we come across a passage of scripture that maybe even comes across as difficult to us. Why did God include this? Because think about the, the amount of years that this that the scriptures cover and what wasn't included i mean we have we have glimpses of what happens in the old testament and it spans thousands of years and we have little little instances little stories that are thrown to us about god working with his people but god was doing other things that weren't recorded for us in scripture so why were the things that are recorded in scripture 
Why were they recorded for us? And I think we get an idea of that in Exodus chapter 8. In Exodus chapter 8, in verse 10. And he said, tomorrow, Moses, be it, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. God reveals himself in such a way in Scripture so that we will know who he is, so that we will see him as better than anything that this world has to offer. It's purposeful. He wants us to see that there's no one or nothing like him. And so as we read Scripture, as we seek to understand Scripture, I think we have to see it through the filter of God has has given me this revelation so that I will see he is unlike anything this world has to offer. That he's the best God possible. It's also, fourthly, it's, it's whole or it's complete. And by that I mean it gives us an entire picture of who God is. Scripture does not try to hide who God is. It doesn't try to tell us the, the best things about God and then try to keep hidden something that maybe we would find less desirable. It reveals to us who God is in a whole sense or in a complete sense. We see this in Romans chapter 1 and in Romans chapter 3. In Romans chapter 1, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Scripture reveals the wrath of God. Jesus talks about the wrath of God. Jesus talks more about what we would say is the bad side of God, the the judgment and the wrath and the eternity in hell, than he does about heaven. Scripture reveals to us a whole picture of God. It doesn't try to cut him up and divide him up into good traits and bad traits and only give us the good about who God is. It doesn't try to hide and protect the bad parts of who he is. It reveals to us everything about who God is. Romans chapter 3 After dealing with the wrath of God being revealed in verse 21 of Romans chapter 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So God reveals his wrath, but he also reveals his righteousness. And he reveals how we can be brought into that righteousness, how that righteousness can count for us. So the application from how God has revealed himself to us. Number one, God reveals himself so we will trust him treasure him and worship him god reveals himself so we will trust him treasure him and worship him going back to what he said to moses i'm revealing myself in this way i'm telling you these things i'm doing these things so that you'll see there's nothing there's no one like me in psalm chapter 9 Verse 1, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord 
sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And I want to draw your attention to verse 10, Psalm 9, verse 10. Those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. The psalmist says, those who truly know you, those who have come to an understanding of who you are and how you work, they always put their trust in you. They understand how you've revealed yourself. They understand the purpose of your revelation. And they respond the right way by trusting in you, worshiping you, treasuring you. That's the goal of of our knowledge that we're generating by studying God's word. It's that it leads us to trust in his name as we come to understand and know it better. How does God reveal himself? He reveals himself to us in his word, but he's done that in different ways in his word. First, he does it through his actions. Through his actions, God shows us who he is in what he does. He reveals himself to us by the things that he does. So as he creates in the book of Genesis, we see his power. We see his wisdom. We can see the infinite wisdom of God simply by examining creation and how it works. As we study the the, the scientific aspect of how our world works, we can see the infinite wisdom of God, the intricate detail in how he's created life and how he's created life to function. In, in instances where we see God's punishment in Scripture, we can see His holiness. We can see how He hates sin, how He treasures holiness, how He treasures His own name and desires relationship with us. We can see His grace through the covenants that He makes available to His people. Time after time after time, He remains faithful to His covenant when the people that He made the covenants with don't. We see aspects of who God is through the way that he acts in Scripture. He reveals himself through his actions. Secondly, he reveals himself through his names. Through his names. God's names act as a window to his character. When he reveals himself to uh, Moses at the burning bush, he reveals himself as Yahweh, as the I Am. We understand through that his eternality. That he's eternal. That he's always been, that he always will be. He's the I am. Jesus reveals himself the same way. In talking with the Pharisees, he says, before Abraham was, I am. And we've talked before how that's incorrect. That's incorrect grammar. Before Abraham was, I was, is how you would expect Jesus to say that. But before Abraham was, I am. Jesus simply views himself as existing, as the eternal existent one. John, the gospel of John reveals himself that way. We talked in the differences between the gospels a couple weeks ago when we were kind of doing a New Testament survey, that some of the gospels start with the genealogy of Jesus and they look at his, uh, at his beginning from an earthly standpoint, his beginning of humanity, whereas John doesn't start with a genealogy. It goes all the way back before the beginning of time. It says before Before the creation of the world, Jesus was there. The word was there, present with God. Next, God reveals himself through his images. God uses analogies to emphasize his character. 
he gives us earthly earthly pictures so that he can draw our attention better to who he is. He can't simply describe himself by saying, I'm a father. It's incomplete. It's not completely accurate about who God is. So he has to reveal himself as a father, as a king, as a judge, as a husband, as a shepherd, as a potter, as a lion. God reveals himself in earthly analogies so that we can take those characteristics of what a perfect father should be. And we know that we can turn to God and find that in him. It's hard for us to understand, and I talked about this before with with different history teachers. It's hard for us to understand the concept of king in our culture because that's such a foreign concept to us. We're used to the democracy that we live under. The, the, The king and a good king was a treasured thing for the people. Knowing that one guy was in charge and was in charge for the good of his people and was going to lead accordingly. God reveals himself as king and he wants us to see the best possible traits that we can find in a king and know that we can find it in him. The same is true for a judge. A judge is not a bad thing. Police are not a bad thing. I don't know about you, but I'm conditioned to think when I see a policeman on the road that I'm about to get caught doing something. Like my immediate reaction is, what am I doing wrong that this policeman's about to pull me over for? Am I, am I speeding? Do I have a tail light out? Like anything that's going wrong, he's going to find it. And I fail to see the presence of police are meant to be a good thing. God says that the government and government officials like that are meant to be a good thing. They're meant to protect They're meant to enforce good in our society. God wants us to see that the best qualities of a judge, someone who enforces right and wrong, and and, and be able to identify those things in him. So through his actions, through his names, through his images, they all lead us to attributes of God. They all lead us to attributes of God. An attribute is truths that God has revealed about himself. So God's revelation leads us to identifying his attributes or truths about him. Truths about who God is. And we, we, we come up with those attributes. We see those attributes through his actions, his names, and his images. And we see those most clearly through the person of Christ in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God, who said, let light light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We come to such a to to a much deeper place of knowing who God is once Jesus shows up because we're able to relate to another human. He takes on that human form for us and he reveals to us who God is through the context of humanity. We're able to deeper appreciate, deeper understand who God is through examining the life of Jesus Christ. It's important to note that all attributes are shared by the Trinity. Sometimes in, in talking with some of these different individuals, different atheists, they're going to they're gonna say that they're okay with Jesus in the New Testament. They're not okay with God of the Old Testament. It's important to understand that attributes aren't distributed differently amongst the Trinity. That the Holy Spirit, that God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son possess all the attributes equally. Attributes are not ways to divide God. He isn't some attributes one day and other attributes another day. He wasn't wrathful in the Old Testament and then he learned to love in the New Testament. He's the same God in the Old Covenant and in the New Covenant. He's the same God today. He's the same God yesterday. He's the same God tomorrow. 
His attributes don't divide him up. He's not sometimes this way and other times this way. We've, I've tried to describe it before. It's like, um, it's like the sun. The sun is what it is. How we experience the sun is what changes. So somebody who's fair-skinned like me walks out into the sun, I'm going to experience the sun badly unless I take some precautions. So I've got to put on the sunscreen. I've got to put on the hat to cover my head. Then I can go out and enjoy a day in the sun. The sun doesn't change. I'm what's needed to change if I'm going to experience the sun properly. We've talked about this before, that, that in our sin, we experience God and his wrath. And we deserve that wrath and punishment. But when we put on the righteousness of Christ, God doesn't change how we experience him changes. We now experience God's presence in a way that we can find the joy and the fulfillment that's supposed to be there because we're protected from the wrath through the righteousness of Christ. So we're what needs to change to enjoy this God who reveals himself with all these different attributes. In our sin, we can't experience the God of the Bible in a good way. God has revealed himself in such a way that he is holy, that his wrath is poured out on sin, and unless we change We experience the God of the Bible negatively, but it's through the change, through the righteousness that he also reveals that we can enjoy him properly and enjoy him rightly and enjoy him in such a way that that we can be with him in a good relationship for eternity. Some of the the attributes that we see in scripture that um, I think really highlight who God is. First of all, God is perfect. He's the sum of all desirable attributes. God is perfect. That's important for us to remember as we approach a God who kills, as we approach a jealous God, and as we approach a God who needs to be feared, that he's a perfect God. He's the sum of all desirable attributes. He possesses all desirable qualities. He's good, he's wise, he doesn't change, he's just, he's loving. We don't need to wish that God is different. For to do so is to wish that he be less than God. Make sure you get that. We should never wish that God is different than what he is. He's the best possible God. We could never conjure up a God, a make-believe God, that would be better than the God that exists. Think about that. We could never create a better God than the one that does exist. We can create better dads than what we got, than we got stuck with. We can create a better mom in our minds. Man, if I had a mom that did this, my mom would be better. We can create better teachers in our minds. We can create better presidents in our minds. We can create better figures in our minds than what we currently have. We can come up with a better scenario. We can't with God. The God that exists is the best possible God. We could never think of something better. Next, God is sovereign. He has absolute authority and rule over creation. In order for this to be true, God must be all-knowing, all-powerful, and absolutely free, which means God does not have to check in with anything or anybody before doing anything. His sovereignty allows his other attributes to function rightly. His ability to love his ability to exercise justice, to show mercy, to show grace, to remain faithful to his promises. They all rely on him being sovereign. Because God is in control, all of his attributes can function to the fullest extent. He's completely in control, so he can love to the fullest. 
He can judge rightly and justly to the fullest. He doesn't have to answer to anybody to make those attributes come about. And then third, and I think this kind of leads us into where we want to go over the next few weeks. God is not cruel. God is not cruel. He only acts based on what man deserves. He only acts on based on what man deserves or what man has earned. A couple of verses to highlight this. Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy 32, 4. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Psalm 62, 12. To you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. You will render to a man according to his work. There's numerous other passages in Scripture that talk about how God reacts. God acts according to how man has performed, according to how man has worked. So what man earns, God responds with. Now, we know from Scripture that because we're born into sin, we earn sin. We earn death. We earn judgment. That's not a cruel God responding to our actions. That's a just God responding to what we've earned. So it's really important because what we find in in the secular society, the secular people that we talk to, people at your workplace, people that you go to school with, there are people that are turned off to God because they find him to be a cruel God. A God who doesn't function the way that they think he should. And we need to be prepared to hit that head on and not shy away from Some of these things that they want to criticize, a God who kills, a God who wipes out children in the Old Testament, a God who's jealous, a God who says that he should be feared. Those things aren't things that we should shy away from. God's not a cruel God. He's not an unkind God. He never acts more severe or harsh than what man deserves. We talked a lot about that a couple of years ago when we examined the existence of hell in light of God's goodness. How can a good God create a place called hell? And we looked at that a lot. And if you want the, the sermon series on that, I can get, I can get that to you. We're, gonna, we're not going to really focus on that aspect over the next couple of weeks. Um, when we looked at God's goodness in light of the existence of hell, we looked at more of the eternal aspect of how does a good God, how do we reconcile a good God with the eternal aspect of hell? What we want to do over the next few weeks is how do we reconcile a good God in today's time, a God who kills, a God who's jealous, a God who should be feared today, not just from an eternal perspective, but from the today perspective, from the present perspective. Um, So that's where we want to kind of go over the next few weeks. So God is not cruel. Some prerequisites to help us understand God's, what we're putting in quotations here, bad behavior, because as we're going to see over the next few weeks, God and 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 him killing God and him being jealous and God and the aspect of us fearing him are not bad things. So it's not really bad behavior. We, we refer to it that way. Lost people want to refer to it that way. That's an incorrect view and we're hopefully going to see that. But we'll continue to refer to it as God's bad behavior because that's how people want to label it. But like I said, over the next few weeks we want to see how that fits right into God's goodness and how it's not uh, 
the less desirable attributes that a lot of times it's perceived to be. The first thing that we have to keep in context is that God is holy. That God is holy. It starts with that. It starts with understanding how God has revealed himself as being completely separate from sin (coughs) and completely different from his creation. He is set apart. He is different. He is holy. In 1 John chapter 1, First John chapter 1, verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Talking about Jesus here. The life was made manifest. We've seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. This is coming from a disciple who spent day and night with Jesus. And his response is, after being with the eternal Son of God, here's my message for you. There is absolutely no darkness in God. There is no injustice in God. This is a guy who would have seen any undesirable qualities in Jesus if there were any to be seen. I mean, Jesus would have spent day and night with him. He would have had every opportunity to see Jesus wake up in the morning and be moody. He would have had every opportunity to see Jesus at his tiredest point responding poorly to a situation, to a circumstance. And John says, after all the time we spent with Jesus, the message that we have for you is God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. There's no selfishness in him. There's no bias in him. There's nothing undesirable in him. He's holy. He's set apart. He's different. There's no sin in him. It's important that we see that, that God is holy, that he reveals himself as holy. He reveals himself as one that cannot fellowship with sin. We see that in Genesis 3 when he has to take his creation and remove them from the Garden of Eden. They can no longer be in that perfect fellowship with him anymore. He can't walk and talk with them like he did before. That that sin has jeopardized and has put them at risk of not being in fellowship with him. Secondly, man is not. If God is holy, man is not. I love the book of Romans because Romans lays it out how every single individual on this earth is, is, is in sin. Romans chapter 1, it's the normal secular guy. He's in sin. He's rejected the knowledge that he has about God. He's turned from worshiping the creator to worshiping the creation. Romans chapter 2, we see pictures of what the moral guy looks like and why he's still in sin. The guy who tries to be religious. The guy who tries to be good. Who tries to do things rightly. That he judges himself according to a standard that, that he doesn't, that doesn't stay consistent with how he judges other people. That he's guilty of the things that he sees in others as being guilty. He's with sin. And even the one who, who's part of the Jewish nation, Paul says, is full of sin. And so the Bible is very faithful to reveal that God is holy, that we are not. Thirdly, that God is just. It's important that as we approach these difficult topics that we remember God is just.
Revelation chapter 20. Verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and, uh, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. They were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of the fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. He's a just God who judges us according to what we've done. He doesn't judge people based on them never hearing about the name of Jesus. Now, we believe that Romans teaches unless they hear about Jesus, they cannot be saved. But they are not judged because they never heard of Jesus. They are judged because of their sin. That's what Paul lays out to him. He says the guy who doesn't have God's law will be judged by the law written on his heart. There's enough there to condemn him to hell for eternity. The fact that he knows the difference between right and wrong, his conscience tells it to him, and he ignores it and does what's wrong. And he'll be judged by what he's done on that day of judgment. Not because he didn't hear about Jesus. He will be sentenced to hell because of his sin. The only thing that can save him from that is Jesus. Paul reveals that to us. Unless we go and teach it, unless we go and preach Jesus to others, they can't be saved from that condition. But they're condemned for their actions. They're condemned for their sin. That's what sentences them to hell, the Bible tells us. Number four. God is just. We are broken. We are broken. This is why it becomes so dangerous for us to allow our sentiments and our emotions to describe to us what we think God is or who we think God is. Because our heart is deceitful, Scripture tells us. We can't trust our assessment of things. We can't trust our understanding of what a loving God should be. We can't trust our understanding of what a just God is should be because we we read these passages and we say god shouldn't kill somebody for picking up sticks on the sabbath god shouldn't kill somebody who's trying to keep the ark of the covenant from tipping over god shouldn't kill babies that are a part of egypt god shouldn't kill the the canaanite babies when the israelites invade their their land why is it okay for god to give that land to to a group of people who didn't live there why is it okay for him to take it from a group of people that were already there and to kill them in the process. Our understanding of justice and love can't be trusted. We're broken. We're sinful. Our views and perspectives are distorted. On a separate note, that's why we have to be so careful about even trusting our own guidance about decisions that we make in life. That's why the book of Proverbs praises individuals who seeks the counsel and wisdom from others before making decisions in their life. It's the, it's the wise man who realizes I can't always trust myself, I can't always trust my heart, can't always trust my assessment of things. I need to bring in godly counsel to help me because I'm broken. Until I get my glorified body, I'm broken. I can't be trusted to always evaluate situations and circumstances from a right perspective. We certainly can't trust ourselves when we get into the idea of thinking that we can determine how God should be and not be based on our own sentiments and understandings. That's where the the atheist gets into trouble because he says, this is cruel for God to do this. This is unloving for God to do this. And it's based on their assumption of what it means to be loving and what it means to exercise justice. We're broken. Number five, he's the creator. He's holy. He's just. He's the creator. 
Job chapter 38, verse 4. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have made him firm the feeble knees. But now it has come to you. You are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Is it not your fear of God, your confidence in the integrity of your ways, your hope? Sorry, it's the wrong passage. I was like, I'm just going to keep reading until that makes sense to me. Job 38, verse 4. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth, God talking to Job? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched out the line upon it? God's speaking in, in a sarcastic way here. He's saying, surely you know this based on what you're, what you're describing. Surely you must have been there. What he's, what he's emphasizing to Job is, no, you don't know this stuff. You don't understand this stuff because you're not the creator. Number six, we're the creation. We're the creation. A quote we've used before by J. Vernon McGee. This is God's universe. He does things his way. You may think you have a better way, but you don't have a universe. That's that's key to remember. It's God's universe. He does things his way. He's revealed to us how he does things. And, and we're trusting, but so what we've already talked about, it's the best way. It's the best God. He's running this universe the best way possible, and we can trust in that. Scripture is God's revelation of himself. Let it speak. We need not think in terms of how we believe things should be. Instead, we should fight to understand why things are the way Scripture says they are. That's why we want to approach some of these difficult topics over the next couple of weeks. We don't want to try to explain them away and dismiss them. We want to understand how do these things fit in with everything else we know about God? How does God killing people, how does God revealing himself as jealous how does God revealing himself as a, as a being who needs to be feared? How does that fit into John 3.16, a God who's, who's all about love and all about sacrifice and all about service? How do we reconcile those things with what we already know about God? We don't want to apologize for Scripture. We want to let Scripture speak for itself and then fight to understand why Scripture says these things are true. Closing with this, I think it's important for us to see that through Scripture, God reveals himself through both salvation and judgment. Through scripture, God reveals himself through salvation and judgment. I came across recently a book, um, a biblical theology book that works through the entire Bible showing how God reveals himself in every major aspect of scripture, both through salvation and through judgment. He says, together these actions protect us from taking advantage of God. So seeing God's judgment protects us from simply viewing him as a grandfather who gives us everything that we want. He's a holy God who's placed responsibility upon us, expectations upon us. But we also see his salvation, which protects us from hopelessly trembling before God. Both of these things work together to give us an accurate perspective on how we're to relate to God. His salvation and his judgment protects us from taking advantage of God and just misusing him and using him like a genie who's just there when we need something. 
But it also protects us from hopelessly trembling before a God who's always to be feared in the way that the Greeks feared the the mythological gods that they had created. Gods that they had to constantly appease. They had to be in fear of how are they going to wake up today kind of thing. As God reveals himself through scripture, it's all about salvation and judgment. And they work together to give us a proper perspective of who God is. Just to kind of highlight some of those key points throughout the timeline of Scripture. We see it in the fall. When, when mankind sins in the garden, he would have been, it would have been very proper and appropriate for God to just wipe out man at that point. He had said it, if you eat of this, you will die. He could have very easily killed Adam and Eve before they had had an opportunity to, to procreate and reproduce. And yet God in his salvation spares them from immediate judgment and provides salvation and communicates ultimate salvation by promising that there would be one who would come to crush the head of Satan, to rescue mankind back to Jesus. We see it in the flood. We see God's judgment upon people, but we also see God's salvation through Noah and his family. We see it in the book of Exodus as God saves his people out of Egypt, but also brings judgment upon the Egyptians. We see it in the exile from the land as God brings judgment upon his people, but also promises a salvation for the remnant of Israel, the believing aspect of Israel. We see it in the death of Jesus when when God brings judgment upon sin for this world. And brings salvation ultimately to God's people. He brings judgment upon the ruler of this world, Satan. As Jesus describes that through the death on the cross, Satan was being cast out. He was being bound so that people could be saved. And then we see it ultimately in the return of Jesus. We highlighted this in 2 Thessalonians that when Jesus returns, it's good for some people. For some of us, it's relief, it's salvation. It's, uh, it's salvation from the oppression that we've been feeling, from the persecution for others, the, the oppression, the persecution starts with the return of Jesus. So all through scripture, we see salvation and judgment, and they work together to give us an accurate picture of who God is. All right, so over the next couple of weeks, why does God kill people? We're going to see that the better question is, why does God let anybody live? That, that immediately we're drawn to some of these cases in scripture where God brings wrath and judgment upon individuals, and we say, how could God do that? We want to see how the better question is, why does God not always do that? Because that's what he should do. That, that's what makes sense. That's what would be ultimately right. But as we're going to see, because of God's other attributes, he reveals those by not doing that all the time. Why is it okay for God to be jealous? We're going to see that ultimately God wants what is best. For his most treasured possession. And so we're going to see how his jealousy is right. And it's good. Because he's jealous for us to have what's best for us. And then why should we fear God? The Bible talks a lot about this. Um, It reveals a God that should be feared. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12 verse 13. The end of the matter all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. Solomon concludes that here's what we need to be about. We need to be about fearing God, keeping his commandments. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus provides comfort by telling us not to worry about those, not to fear those that can kill us. But he gives us another aspect of it. He says, um, Luke chapter 12, 
verse 4. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And then lastly, in Hebrews uh, chapter 10. Verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of of the living God. Jonathan Edwards preached a memorable sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. We want to examine what it means to fear God the way that Scripture tells us to. So that's coming over the next three weeks. Why does God kill people in the Bible? Um, why does God reveal himself as jealous? And why is it okay for him to be jealous? And then why should we fear God? How do we reconcile that with everything else that we know about God? I'm privileged to be able to teach this series along with Adam and Tyson. And so they're going to be incorporated into this series. So we're going to, the three of us are going to kind of tag team this over the next three weeks um, and hit these topics together. So I'm excited about being able to um, discuss these things uh, with you guys.